0: that a second time. It's actually the more important service for true believers, um, and I would encourage you all to come to it whenever you're able. It starts at 9.30. So. For now, we will continue our worship, and we'll turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 11, if you'd please turn there. We're going to be going into chapter 12 today, the first three verses of 12. For the scripture reading today, (coughs) I'm going to read, uh, let's see, I'll read verse 27 through 12.3. So Genesis 11, verse 27. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, the Ur of Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah Tir- took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and his Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and then Terah died in Haran. And Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land, from your kin, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse." May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. He may be seated. <coughs> In the first two verses of the 11th chapter <coughs> of the epi- uh, epistle to the Hebrews, we are given the very definition of saving faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, the men of old gained approval. Whose approval did men of old gain by their faith? Why, the Lord God himself. This was divine approval, justifying approval. Then over the next 20 verses, the writer begins to give a mini summary of Genesis, starting with the creation account, using very clear, very plain, very common language, which even a child could understand and comprehend. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. All things, including all of humanity, were spoken into existence by God's powerful word. He then gives examples of both men and women of old whose justifying faith was evidenced by their obedience to the sovereign Lord whose promises they believed even the promises of ultimate divine approval, ultimate justification, eternal approval in his presence. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. By faith, Noah, being warned about the things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. The author says, says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. These men had true saving faith. It was demonstrated by their God-glorifying obedience. And now, fast forward 10 generations, all the way to the man of faith for our text today. 10 generations after Noah, Shem, Arpaxed, Shelah, Eber, Pelug, Ru, Serug, Nahor, Terah. Terah, who had become the father of Abraham, who would become who? Abraham, that's right. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place with which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. That's what we're going to look at this morning. This very moment, this very calling, this calling of this man, Abram, this child of wrath, this lover of self, this captive to the lusts of the flesh and the mind, this false God-serving, idol-worshipping slave of Satan, uh, this sinner, who, right here in chapter 12, verse 1, was called out of the darkness and brought into the marvelous light of the great I Am. That's our text for this morning. You know, we've never been shy about proclaiming the doctrines of grace from this pulpit. We've never hesitated to declare the absolute sovereignty of God over every aspect of salvation. We've never shrunk back in our declaration of the crystal clear biblical instruction concerning the foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying of those whom God has elected unto salvation from before the very foundations of the earth. And how could we be? Those are the very teachings of Christ and the apostles. We've never vacillated or wavered in declaring our unashamed conviction concerning divine sovereign election. How could we be? Such truths are found on nearly every page of holy and inspired scripture, including the pages that contain our text for this morning. And so, it's a delight. A pure delight to share with you yet another example from scripture, perhaps the foremost example of the unparalleled joy of unconditional sovereign election. And just to be straight up with you this morning, I'm no longer content with just proclaiming the truth of this doctrine. I'm no longer content to merely attempt to convince you of its veracity. It is true. It is true. And many have gone out from us because of it, which has had zero impact on my declaration of it. But I'm no longer content with just giving statement after f- statement of fact after statement of fact. Instead, I sincerely feel compelled, through this account, to encourage you and equip you to cherish this doctrine. Okay? To love this doctrine, to embrace this doctrine, to cling to this marvelous, God-exalting, man-humbling doctrine of grace, amazing grace, to revel in it, to celebrate it, to take comfort in it, to then encourage you to go out into a world that is dying and proclaim this truth yourselves, to, to tell of it, to teach it unashamedly to others, to Both know sound doctrine and refute those who are forced to lie to themselves about the goodness of humanity in order to contradict it. In other words, I think we need to be even more bold in our proclamation of divine sovereign election. And so that's my goal whenever the text dictates, which again is certainly the case for today. The goal is for this body of faithful men and women to see and hear of this calling of Abram, and to rejoice that if you sit there as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you were called to salvation by your Creator in the very same way. In the very same way. In fact, the only way. And that is by divine sovereign election. Okay? Yeah? So let's start out now by looking at verse 10. Let's get into some of the background of this divine calling. As we see right from the get-go, a very familiar name appearing here. These are the generations of Shem. We've seen this word for generations before, this toledos. This is the offspring of, uh, the genealogy of, in this case, Shem, who was a son of Noah and one of only eight souls spared at the global flood, one of the eight souls through who, uh, who through no doing of his own was saved from the mighty wrath of God. As he poured out his righteous indignation upon his creation out of hundreds of millions, if not billions of human beings. Here is one of eight who's not only spared and saved, but one who was blessed. Remember Chapters 9 and 10, these are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, who was actually the middle son, yet contrary to the cultural norms, received a blessing and the inheritance typically reserved for the eldest here. Shem was blessed. Japheth was blessed through him, and Canaan, the son of Ham, was to be their servant. But why was Shem blessed? Well, because he was in the preserved line. He was in the line of the promised seed of the woman that was given clear back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the messianic line, which started all the way back with Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve. Seth, who again, uh, his Toledoth was given back in chapter 5. Remember? Seth to Enosh, Enosh to Kenan, Kenan to Mahalalel, Mahalalel to Jared, Jared to Enoch, Enoch to Methuselah, Methuselah to Lamech, Lamech lived 182 years, became the father of a son. He called his name Noah. Fast forward 500 years. Noah was 500 years old. Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now our text. Fast forward even further, over 100 years now. After the construction of the ark, after the great flood, after the worshiping God for delivering them from the Uh, from perishing with the rest of mankind, which God would have been absolutely justified in doing, right? But he didn't. Fast forward to our text where we read, Shem was 100 years old, and he became the father of Arpaxid, two years after the flood. Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpaxid, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Now, Two things I want you to notice in this genealogy here. First of all, notice how the lifespans are getting shorter. Okay? Many people believe that one of the consequences of the global flood was the alteration of not only the topography and the landscape, but also of the atmospheric conditions, which once provided certain protections to people, which allowed them to live for a very long time. Post-flood, that wasn't the case. Not many 900-year-olds walking around anymore. Okay? Just Noah, actually. Noah was the only one. His wife may have been older. I don't know how old she was. But I do want you to notice how the lifespans begin to shrink here. Also, note how they typically had children earlier in life. Okay? No more 500-year-old first-time dads. Now they're all under 100. Okay? So that's the first difference as we go through this. Second, as we read this. I want you to notice a key phrase that's missing from our study of the generations back in chapter 5. Three words that characterized and summarized life on earth before the flood. Do you remember those three words? And he died. That's right. And he died. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. All the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died, and on and on it goes, but we don't see that here. Why not? Well, even though these men died, but we're entering into the detailed account of redemptive history that deals with one man, where the theme of Scripture now changes from death to life, from cursing to blessing, from separation to reconciliation where instead of seeing this huge picture of creation unfolding and 20 generations spanning over the first 10 chapters and over two millennia, we will now slow it down, way down to consider this one man and his offspring, one man whom God will call by his good pleasure alone and for his good purpose alone to reconcile a people to himself, to create a nation by which all the other nations of the world would be blessed, one man and his son and their sons. Now, four generations. Four generations. 400 years of time will take us through the remaining 38 chapters of Genesis. But for now, we start with Shem, the son of Noah, who had a son named Arpaxid. What an awesome name for a little boy. Sounds like some sort of majestic stallion from an old fantasy novel or something. I shall summon... I said to myself during my study, if I have another kid, Lord willing, which would be an Abrahamic miracle in itself, but (coughs) if I have another kid, I will name him Arpaxit. This guy was truly blessed, if only for his name. Then I found out the meaning. Failed at the breast. He couldn't nurse. He had a latching problem, apparently. I don't know. It's a bummer. Still a cool name for a man, though, right? It makes you wonder then why he went on to name his kid Sheila. That wasn't very nice. It's a woman's name. That's it was probably Sheila, but we're gonna say Sheila. We see it in verse 12, right? Our Paxid lived 35 years, just a young buck. Became the father of Sheila. Our Paxid lived 403 years after he became the father of Sheila. He became the father of other sons and daughters. And Shelah lived 30 years, became the father of Eber. He became the father of other sons and daughters as well. Interestingly, Eber is where we get the term Hebrew, like the epistle to the Hebrews. That name comes from this man right here. Verse 16, Eber lived 34 years, became the father of Peleg. Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Now, If you remember back from our time in chapter 10, we already went through all this. We we went through this line of Shem, but you remember the names after Eber went a different direction, right? Peleg means division, okay? And and Moses was giving us the other side, the other line of Eber beginning with Joktan, and he did so to tell his readers how the non-godly nations and territories would come about, okay? Back in chapter 10, Eber had two sons. This one was Joktan, One son was Joktan, heathen nations. Now here's the other son, his brother, Peleg. Again, this is the messianic line now that we're about to go down, through Peleg. Peleg was of the godly line of Seth and Shem that would lead to both Abram and the Christ himself. Here's the lineage of Christ, which continues through verse 18. Peleg lived 30 years, became the father of Ru. Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years, became the father of Seirug, and Ru lived 207 years after the, he became the father of Seirug, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. Seirug lived 30 years, became the father of Nahor. Sehor lived, excuse me, Seirug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor. He became the father of other sons and daughters. You'll see the sa- very same line in Luke chapter three with one notable variation, however. Luke adds the name Canaan in between Arpaxid and Shelah. Many think this was a later scribal addition, namely from whoever was copying Luke's gospel and using the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which included the name, even though the original Hebrew did not. So, when you're reading Luke 3 and you see the section name in there, well, there you go. Uh, either way, uh, Moses says in verse 24 Nahor lived 29 years, became the father of Tira. Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Tira. He became the father of other sons and daughters. Now, here he is, brothers and sisters, the patriarch. Verse 26. Terah lived 70 years, became the father of Abram and Nahor and Haran. So that's the line from Shem to Abram who would become Abraham. That's the preserved line of the promised seed. Now let's look a bit closer into the environment that Abram was raised in because these were all true Israelites indeed, right? Terah, Terah, Nahor, these these were all good Israelites, right? No, Jacob hasn't even been born yet. Israel hasn't even come about yet. Jacob becomes Israel in chapter 32. These were not Israelites. They weren't even Shemites, actually, apart from their genetic makeup. They they weren't true Shemites Shemites because they didn't call on the name of Shem's God. Remember chapter 9? Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. The god of Nahor and Tira was not Yahweh. The god of Nahor and Tira was very likely Suin, or Sin. And I don't mean their own sin. I mean an actual false god named Sin, or Nanar, or Nanasuin, the moon god. The most prominent god in the pantheon of gods in the very cosmopolitan city of the Ur of Chaldees in southern Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Uh, back then it was just known as Ur. <laughs> These were they were all pagan worshipers in this place, okay? All pagan worshipers. Uh, false deity worshipers, including Abram and his clan. Joshua confirms as much when he gathers all the tribes of Israel. Together and their elders, after taking the promised land, when he speaks to the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river. Namely, Terah, the father of Abram and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So I want to make this crystal clear, okay, before we get into Abraham's calling in chapter 12. I want us to be crystal clear as to what Abram was called out of through no doing of his own. These were pagan idolaters. These were moon god worshipers here. They didn't serve and obey Yahweh. Yahweh himself said so. He just said so. Quote, they served other gods. They served other gods. Let me ask you really quickly. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you grow up in a Christian home? Well, if so, you should thank God. That's a tremendous act of divine grace in itself. You got a good head start. You're probably spared from a lot of grief. Praise the Lord. <coughs> or, did you grow up in a godless, secular, pagan home? Well, rejoice, because you're in good company. That was Abraham's upbringing. Yet, God made him the father of many nations, right? That's right. Look at verse 27. These are the generations of Terah, or Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Why does Moses mention Lot here? What's he got to do with this? Well, verse 28, Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father, in the land of his birth, the Ur of the Chaldeans. Lot's dad, Haran, dead. He's dead. Meaning Lot now took his father's place as head of the family. So he's listed here. We see Lot become a prominent figure over the next few chapters. But for now, we have the surviving brothers, Nahor and Abram. Nahor being older than Abram, by the way. But four men living in the epicenter of moon god worship. But they weren't alone, right? Verse 29. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abraham's, or excuse me, Abram's wife was Sarai, which in Hebrew means princess. But in Akkadian, one of the confused languages, yeah, Akkadian was one of the confused languages from the dispersion, uh, and in that language, Sharatu means queen, and Sharatu was the female consort of guess who? The moon god Sin. She was named after this woman, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, which in Hebrew actually does mean queen. But again, in Akkadian, which was spoken in this place and time, Malkutu is, uh, is another title of the goddess Ishtar, who was the daughter of, guess who? The moon god Sin. Considering what we were just told in Joshua... It's safe to say that Sarai and Milka were named after the wife and daughter of pagan deities. Verse 29 says, "Milka was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milka, the father of Ishka." Again, Haran was Lot's dad, who apparently died at a very young age, and right in front of his dad, Tira. So we have Nahor the grandfather, Tira the father. Nahor the son, Abram the son, and Haran the son who died, hence Lot's inclusion. Nahor then marries his dead brother's daughter, or his niece. Lot will go on to have two daughters of his own. We'll get into their charming escapades in chapter 19. Then we have this princess, this Sarai. Whose daughter was Sarai? Tira, Abram's dad, meaning she was Abram's what? Sister, though they had different moms, okay? This was an incestuous union. Leviticus 18 had not been written yet, right? So this type of union was not frowned upon in this time or place. In fact, it was necessary at some times. Verse 30, we see an indicator of one of the primary challenges Abram, soon to be Abraham, uh, Abraham, and Sarai, soon to be Sarah, would face. Sarai, Moses said, was barren. She had no child. This is among the worst thing that could happen to a woman in those days, even worse than marrying your big brother. (laughs) Verse 31. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans, in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Okay, so this is very important. Perhaps a little glimmer of hope before chapter 12, Terah picks up his family, they head out of this pagan city, and they head to Canaan. Why did they do that? Well, God told Abram to go there. We'll see the account of this here in a minute here, but... Here's the actual migration here. It's starting to happen even now. Stephen confirms as much in his speech to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. He said, Hear to me, hear me, my brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. This is the same area before he lived in Haran. And said to him, Leave your country and your relatives, come into the land that I will show you. So the whole family, they get up and they begin their trek to Canaan. But what happens? Hope. Quickly fades, is what happens. As for whatever reason, instead of going due west to Canaan, the family takes a long northern route up through Haran where Terah ends up dying. Nobody knows for certain why they would go up uh, to Canaan through Haran, but we do know that there was a certain allure, allurement or draw for this particular family. Guess what that draw was? The same old moon god. Okay? If Ur or Ur of the Chaldeans was the primary center of moon god worship, of sin worship, Haran was the secondary spot to faithfully serve him. Okay? Another way to look at this if Ur was the Disney world of sin, Haran was the Disneyland of sin. Okay? (laughs) Terra. Or Tira likely insisted on this northern route so he could pay homage to his god. Still, worshipping the moon god. Now, why mention all this? Why spend so much time on this? 30 minutes now. Well, because this is the environment and the upbringing that Yahweh calls this man out of. He called Abram out of this world. Out of this evil age, out of this evil world system and this society, and frankly, that should give us all hope as we sit here in this evil age, in this evil society, in this culture, in this country, in this state and city even, which is absolutely and totally corrupted. This should give us hope. As we are in this country that is in a tailspin of corruption and injustice and immorality, America, as we know it, is over. And the whole world is rejoicing over her demise. This was Abram's culture as well. It was just rotten, run to the core. Dark, depraved, cursed. We see see it in these verses clear as day. This was an environment full of rampant spiritual decay and death fathers dying sons dying uncles marrying their nieces brothers marrying their sisters one who can't produce children and the whole lot of them were worshiping some dead moon god this family is, is so full of dysfunction and depravity in the midst of a city full of dysfunction and and depravity it leads the reader to ask at this point in the narrative where's the hope here where's the hope We just got done with the dispersion and and just a few short generations later, here we are again. These are like the days leading up to the flood. Where's the bright spot? If it all ended here, we may very well live out the rest of our days in utter despair. This is it? This this life, this is all there is? The only thing to look to for hope is some capricious moon god who can't deliver us from our miseries? nor the fate of certain death because ultimately he's a creative being himself, created in the imaginations of wicked men. What a miserable life to serve such a God. We could say the same thing today, right? This is it? This world? This country? Prosperity leading to promiscuity? Affluence leading to arrogance? Religiosity leading to reprobation? Corrupt world leaders and government officials continually forsaking their integrity all for temporal power and status? A a culture full of people compromising their values and selling their souls for the sake of entertainment? This is it? So we can idolize movie stars and sports teams and social media influencers which are all saturated in hypersexuality and rampant child exploitation at the highest levels? People sacrificing, literally sacrificing their children on the altar of casual sex. The unbeliever living today has to say the very same thing Tell me, this isn't all there is. It's like a bad dream. The unbeliever's life is an utterly hopeless life, it's a tragic waste of a life. And such was the case for this family at this point in the 11th chapter. This 11th chapter is so depressing to read in so many ways, if you just read it. Because ultimately, we we all know it's a microcosm of the world's condition, even this present world's condition. When the true God is out of the picture, when the one true God is out of the picture, this is what we get. This is the environment we were all born into maybe not worshiping mythological deities like moon gods or sun gods, but certainly in an environment of sin and death, certainly having to navigate our lives in this corrupted world full of depraved humanity and as possessors of a totally depraved nature ourselves. (laughs) Don't take my word for it, though. Uh, I think Paul's words to the Ephesian church are just so good so clear in explaining our condition in this world before Yahweh sovereignly intervening in our lives. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter two. You can see it with your own eyes. Don't believe me. Don't take everything I say for gospel. You gotta verify it for yourself. Don't just believe everything that some guy stands up and tells you. You see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. And we'll wait for just a couple minutes here. Actually, a couple seconds because I'm running out of time. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. I don't think this can be stated any clearer and yet it's so hard for people to to understand. Or maybe they do understand. They just, just flat out reject it. I think the latter is true. He says... You were dead. 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 In your transgression and sins. In what you formerly walked. According to the course of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. I'm... among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's us. That was all of us. Paul even includes himself. The great apostle says, we all formally conducted ourselves in this way, all of us. Not a one of us is exempt in here, believer or unbeliever. We were all, and many still are, slaves to sin. Slaves to our own sin nature in bondage to the adversary, Satan himself. We were against God. We were enemies of God. We were haters of God in this world. We were absolutely and totally spiritually bankrupt. Totally incapable of of doing anything anything of any redeemable quality or heavenly worth apart from God's sovereign intervention. I love to talk about our total depravity and absolute inability. I love it. I love to talk about our spiritual condition before Christ. I love to talk about the total deadness of our original nature from God's point of view. I could and sometimes do talk about it all day long. Which may explain why I don't have many friends. (laughs) But nevertheless, I still love talking about it and meditating upon it and recalling it to mind daily. I love talking about it because, and only because, of the very next words that the apostle writes But God. But God. We were dead dead we were all idol worshipers if not foreign uh, of foreign gods then certainly worshipers of ourselves exemplified perfectly in our age by everyone looking into little rectangle boxes all day long and taking pictures and videos of themselves that's self worship we were all dead spiritually speaking even within evangelicalism yes if you believe in the free will of man, which is a pagan myth right up there with the moon God, then you'd have to admit that our free will was naturally bent toward ungodliness. To never seeking after God in our own strength. The very thought of loving us holy God went against our nature. We not have anything in us that made us seek after God. In fact, we all hated God. We were at enmity with God and he with us. We were judged already, says Jesus Christ. In John chapter three, verse 18, condemned already. Thanks to the original sin of Adam, all of humanity was conceived of and born born in, in sin, condemned to death already. In other words, there was nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing inside any one of us that prompted God to look down upon us with that special, faithful, loyal, and saving love. There was nothing within within us. And yet, that's what he did. That's what he did. But God, Paul says. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, which we were, he just told us. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He says it again a few verses later. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no man may boast. Same thing here. In Genesis. Okay? No chapter divisions in the early manuscript. Chapter 11, this world is thoroughly corrupted. This family is thoroughly corrupted, totally depraved. No hope. No hope. Idolatry, unrighteousness, sinfulness, barrenness, decay, death. Chapter 12, and Yahweh said, This is Moses' but God. You see that? This is the point in Genesis where everything changes. Everything changes right here in verse one when Yahweh shows up and intervenes and says, enough, enough, you, come here. (laughs) That's what happens. Verse one, Yahweh said to Abram, Abram, why Abram? What's so good about Abram? Why not Nahor? Why, why did Haran have to die before they moved? What's so good about Abram? Tell me, what's so good. What, what was it within Abram that caused that, that God saw and said, "Hmm, I think I'll choose this guy out of the hundreds of millions of people living on the Earth at this time." What was so good about Abram? Answer: nothing. Nothing. He wasn't even a Jew at this point. He wasn't even a good Jew. So that's out. But even after he's justified by faith, we'll see him prostitute his sister wife to not one but two foreign kings to save his own neck. This guy was no hero. He's just a man. He was just a man like all of us here today. There are none who are inherently righteous. No, not one. No man is righteous. Only God. This is the calling of Abram. I referenced Romans 8 earlier, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are what? Called. Yeah, called according to his purpose. Those who are called. And Yahweh said to Abraham, or Abram, not the other way around. Stephen said the the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Not the other way around. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews said, by faith Abraham when he was called. Not the other way around. Anybody who is saved, who has received the gift of salvation were called to that same salvation by the sovereign grace and mere good pleasure of God alone. Not the other way around. And that divine call wasn't even the first step in our redemption. It was actually the third. Paul explains, Romans eight twenty nine, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined he also called. That's third. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He foreknew them. What does that mean, Paul? That he foresaw them? That God foresaw that they would choose him someday and so he responded by then predestining them or electing them for justification by faith alone? Is that what it means, Paul? Negative. Negative. In fact, I'm going to call that what it is, blasphemy. Why? Because it would necessitate God's having to learn something at some point in time, namely, or even before time, namely, who it was that would respond to him and who it was that would reject him. At some point he didn't know, then he knew. What do you mean he didn't know? <laughs> that's, that's a denial of an attribute of God. That's a denial, a denial of his omniscient nature that he is all-knowing. You can't deny any part of his nature and at the same time seriously claim to be one of his children. I'm sorry, you just can't do it. And you shouldn't be afraid to tell people that. Don't be afraid to tell people that. Certainly don't be ashamed to tell people that. God foreknew he intimately knew and chose from before the foundation of the earth, we are told in numerous places, and he did it before we were born or did anything good or bad. Same thing here with Abram. Yahweh knew Abram. Pro- Prognosko is the word here. He foreknew that he would save Abram and call him for this purpose. And he didn't wait till Abram grew up a little bit so that he could observe his conduct and then make that decision. No, his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life from even before the foundation of the earth. This is Romans 9 stuff, right? Romans 9. Saw a nice license plate out there. Somebody has Romans 9. (laughs) I love it. Romans 9 talks about Abraham's grandsons, right? For though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand not because of works but because of him who calls. He said, as it is written, Jacob I loved but Esau I hated. Some folks say this is a, a reference to uh, nations, not people. Well, that's nonsense. He's talking about individuals. We know their individual testimonies. It's written. And Paul anticipates people getting all ruffled up over this and irritated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. That means there is only one who possesses free will, And I assure you, it is not sinful humanity. We were all born into this world condemned already, doing nothing at all to deserve divine favor or divine grace, right? What did we deserve instead for our sin? Yeah, not not just for Adam's sin, but for our own sin. What did we deserve? Death. Death, right. Yet, some people are shown grace, right? Is that unjust that they were shown grace? Of course not especially when you consider that the sin of these people was actually paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. But what about the people who aren't shown grace, who remain in that spiritually dead, God-hating condition their entire lives, all the way to their death, and have to spend eternity in hell apart from his love for all of eternity? Is it unjust that they weren't shown grace? Is that unjust? No. Is there injustice in that they got exactly what they deserved? Is there any unrighteousness with God because he chose to extend grace and mercy to Abram, and as far as we know, not Nahor? Is that unrighteous? That he extended grace to Jacob, but not Esau? Is that unjust? You just tell me. Maybe I got it wrong. Probably not, though, because that's what the text says. That's not unjust. Paul says, by no means. May it never be! God forbid! Some translations. Nahor deserved exactly what he got. Uh, got he, he got what what he what, what was coming to him. This is what he deserved. Esau deserved this punishment. He was separated from God. Okay, let me let me bring it back home here. We all, all of us in here, deserve to die and spend the rest of our eternity in hell forever. And there's nothing unfair about that. There's nothing unfair about that. In fact, such a penalty is right and just. But God. But God, for reasons only known to him, knows some, loves some, predestines some, elects some, chooses some, justifies some, saves some, blesses some, makes alive some, and will glorify some. Why did he save some? Why did he save me and not some of my family members? I have no idea. As Spurgeon said, if you knew who I was and what I've done, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But if I really knew you and who, who you were, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I have absolutely no idea why you would choose to save me. I don't know. But the moment that I begin to say, because I is the moment that I blaspheme the name of the sovereign Lord of the the heavens and the earth, and it's the moment that I lie to you. That would be a lie. You know, I think all believers, all true believers, won't hesitate for a second to say, man, I'll tell you exactly who I was. I was a wretch. A a miserable, spiritually dead, self-absorbed wretch. Abraham would tell you the very same thing if you're standing here right now. Paul would tell you the same thing too. He just did. Peter, James, John, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones, anyone who takes the Bible for what it is, the inspired word of God, which is crystal clear, would tell you. For by grace we have been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works so that no man may boast. Why? Would he put a prohibition on that? Because we would boast. So this is not coming from a place of haughtiness. In fact, the exact opposite. What's the difference between us and unbelievers? What's the difference? Why why does he choose us and call us and save any one of us and not those around us? The answer? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. But Was blind, but now I see. Grace alone. As soon as you start saying, God chose us for salvation for any other reason than his mere good pleasure, that grace disappears. The grace disappears and human works and human achievement comes creeping in, which is the hallmark of literally every other religion in the entire history of the world, including atheism, secular humanism, and self-worship, which are all the same thing. That's why we preach and teach and Love and embrace and cling to and cherish with all of our hearts the doctrine of unconditional sovereign election. It removes the tremendous burden of having to obtain or maintain our own salvation and our own strength. It doesn't remove our responsibility to believe and obey human responsibility, divine sovereignty. They work together. How they work together exactly, I can't explain that to you, but I know it doesn't remove that responsibility for us to believe but rather it removes the burden of thinking that the power to do so comes from within ourselves. I can assure you it does not. Grace is a gift from God. Even the faith that justifies us is a gift from God, for he is the author and perfecter of faith. It's his faith to give. (laughs) This is so stress-relieving to me. It's the opposite of offensive to me. In fact, this is what causes me to praise him. Thank you, O Lord for not decreeing the obtaining or retaining of my justification before you up to me. Thanks for not leaving it up to me because I would have blown it every single time. This is why this doctrine is so incredibly wonderful. There's nothing else like it in the whole world. No mere man could come up with a plan like this, which is why no mere man is worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen. That's right. Texts like these should bolster our faith in God, our trust in God, our hope of eternal life with God. Texts like these they should obliterate our anxieties, our fears, our doubts, our worries, knowing that we serve an all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-gracious God is a true joy. His absolute sovereignty should be a balm to our weary souls, especially as we live out the remainder of our lives in this dark, evil and corrupt world system full of sin and death. Now, very quickly, I've run out of time, but lest we need any more confirmation that this calling of Abram was all of God, look at the next few verses. Brad is going to touch on this next week as well. He's going to have to actually cover it next week as well. Uh, We will do the touching. He will do the covering. (laughs) We're going to keep moving here. But watch how the (laughs) providential... Watch how the providential will, Jake, you're going to edit that out if you can? Watch how the providential will of the sovereign Lord begins to take shape here. Particularly, notice the words, I will. Yahweh said to Abram, go forth from your land, from your kin, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. You start heading out to Canaan, a new land. I will show it to you. The land is ultimately mine, but I'm going to give it to you. It's just as dark and depraved as Ur, or Haran, by the way, maybe even worse, but that's where you're going. Leave everything. Leave your place, leave your family, leave your foolish religion. Take your wife with you, of course. Your nephew's going to come along as well, but leave everything else you've ever known behind, and you go over here. And then the I wills continue, okay? And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will, I will, I will. Three promises. The result, your name will be great. So you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. I will. I will. Two more promises. The result, not just your offspring, not just your line, not just the nation that would come from you, but in fact every nation, every nation of the whole world. In you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now how is that possible? Because of the one who would come, a direct descendant of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, Israel, the promised deliverer, the promised seed of the woman from clear back in Genesis chapter three, who had crushed the head of the serpent, the one who was in fact born of a woman, born of a virgin, meaning he didn't inherit Adam's sinful nature passed down to the rest of us. The one who was born under the law, yet was without sin. He never deviated from that law to the left or to the right, nor did he deviate from his father's will to the left or the right, in either thought, word, or deed. The one who came down to this earth that was spoken into existence by him, for him, and through him. This earth that was created, as the writer of Hebrews said, by the very word of God, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Of course we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life full of love and mercy and compassion. Sorry, Michael, I'm just about done here. I hear the, no, you can go, I'm gonna hear the screaming. <laughs> Our sweet boy. Everybody else is thinking the same thing. Uh, Jesus Christ lived a life Full of love and mercy, compassion, He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and those who were near, those who were far off, both Jews and Gentile, all whom He foreknew and chose by his sovereign-electing grace alone to have their sins forgiven, all whose sins would be paid for through his sacrificial death, his subsequent burial, his triumphant resurrection and his glorious ascension to the right hand of his Father on high. Let me just ask you, are you one of those this morning? Are you one of those? Are you one who has heard this call and responded in God-given faith? You say, how can I possibly know? Well, do you have faith? Do you believe the promises of his word? Do you believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the very Son of God came into this world to save sinners by his amazing grace alone? Do you believe that he died for you to wash you clean of your sin by his precious life-giving blood? Do you truly believe this? Then, my brothers and sisters, you are among the elect of God. You are truly his. You can walk out of here this morning with all the confidence in heaven and on earth that your eternal life was secured from before the very foundation of the earth. Because of this, there's nothing that can ever pluck you out of his righteous, omnipotent hand. Okay? And that's worth praising his holy name together Amen. this morning. Amen? Amen. <coughs> thank you all for your patience today. Let's have Noel come up and close us in musical worship and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your unfailing love, your abundant mercy that you poured out upon us, miserable, wretched sinners, that you have reconciled us to yourself and will will one day be with you and see you face to face in heaven for all of eternity in the new heavens, the new earth. We're just so grateful. We're so grateful to be your children, your adopted sons and daughters. I want to pray for anybody in here Uh, who does not know you, I pray that you would, by your grace alone, call them to salvation this morning, that if it would be your will, you would save their everlasting soul, and they would be with us 10,000 times 10,000 years from now, praising your holy name for what's been done for us through Christ. You are worthy of their praise as well as ours, but it's a delight to give it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.